Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., today we're going to talk to Dan Heath of Chip and Dan Heath fame. Uh They've sold a billion books. Yes. And they're brilliant. Their new book is about creating great moments, moments that customers would remember. He's very convincing in the fact that what you remember is not life. What you remember is not your interaction with a brand. What you remember are a few moments they created. Most of us try to stop negative moments from happening to customers, but in trying to stop negative moments, we forget to create high point moments. And when I talked to him, I realized it's true. You really look back and you remember kind of high moments. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, <laughs> we did not have very much money. You yeah, know, like, you and me both. <laughs> I remember my mom one time when we went to the grocery store going, it feels so good to be able to buy paper towels. Like, it was just like, we had come to the point where it's like, we can afford paper towels yes. now. But even in Because normally you would run through the streets doing jazz <laughs> just, hands. It's like, go outside, guys. You have to dry outside. <laughs> but I remember even in the midst of that, my mom, she basically made everything a party. So like on Sunday nights, my dad was working a lot of times. And so... She would make like apple slices, government cheese was what we got. So cheese slices. And then she would make caramel corn. Yeah. And that would be our dinner. And we thought it was, as kids, it was the greatest thing ever. Like, I remember sitting down with my whole family, getting so excited. My mom would be like, we get popcorn tonight. She's creating a moment, a a high moment. But in reality, she didn't have to cook. It was very inexpensive. Like, we all got under the blankets. And back then, I think it would be like the Disney family movie night. Yes. Yeah, I love that night. So we would watch Disney family movies together, and we would eat the caramel corn and apples and cheese slices, and it was cheese cheap and my mom didn't have to cook and she told us later like the whole reason she did it is because she didn't want to (laughs) cook but but she made it a moment i remember my mom took us to disneyland yeah disney world Uh that was expensive we drove from houston it was a three seats in the back two seats in the front and six of us on the trip (laughs) and she would go to garage sales no kidding Uh all year long before we went to disney world she'd go to garage sales and she'd find used Disney toys. Yes. <laughs> and then she would wrap them up, put them in her suitcase, and we'd go to Disney World for the day, come back in the hotel, room, and then she'd slowly reveal to these toys that <laughs> we thought we got yeah. Disney World. <laughs> that is genius. That's it, pretty that smart. That is genius. But I remember, you know, years ago, seven, eight years ago, I rode my bicycle across America with a team. Mm-hmm. That was seven weeks. Yeah. The first day was about a 13-hour ride. By the end of the trip, we got that down about six or seven, about 100 miles a day. That is a lot of hours. Yeah. You know what I remember? I remember pie in the mountains of New Mexico, a pie shop. Uh I remember fireworks on the 4th of July. Uh I remember a lot of food. I remember Sonic. (laughs) I remember a night at Sonic. You could eat 10,000 calories a day. Uh I was in heaven. Yes. (laughs) Got those tater tots. And you think about that's hundreds and hundreds of hours riding a bicycle. I remember sunrise in Joshua Tree National Park. I remember begging for water from a construction crew. <laughs> it was the only people I'd seen in about 80 miles. It was 112 degrees that oh day. Oh, my gosh. I remember moments. Yeah. And we don't think about that when we're interacting with customers to create the moments yep. that they will remember, these sort of high point moments. Yeah. And it's a fascinating theory. And I think as our listeners listen to it, and we're all in business, as you listen to it, think about what can you sort of automate? What can you do to create moments as simple yeah. as a automated system where you send a follow-up card, yeah. a phone call, you know, around Christmas, you actually tie a red bow around the package or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, 
there's something that makes you stand out, and it yeah. can be very, very inexpensive, yeah. but it's important. What I love about even just being at StoryBrand, one of the first things that happened when I came on staff is Tim talked about surprise and delight. You yeah, know, yeah. We got surprise that from, our customers. Yeah, and we do that internally with our staff. But then, you know, when somebody started a new business, you know, send them a little pizza, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and recently we just ran into somebody who we had sent their child a megaphone after the launch of the Building a StoryBrand book. Oh, that's book. right. We sent their child a megaphone because the child was the one who really wanted it. And, <laughs> and he was just like over the moon. And those little things, they're going to remember that yeah, forever. Yeah, the thoughtfulness of it. Yeah. We were at a New Year's Eve dinner, about six of us, and there were two women sitting at the table next to us. And they were asking what we ordered, because you could only order from like three things yeah. on the menu. It was one of those menus where it's like, yeah. you order You're menu one, menu two. rubbing it in since yeah. my flight was late. Yeah, yeah, I you couldn't be there. Dinner. You had peanut butter and jelly. No, no, you ate a Taco <laughs> Bell in an airport. You were supposed to be there. <laughs> you don't know that this happened. There were two ladies sitting next to us, yeah. and they asked, hey, which meal did you order? And we gave them our, you know, we were a few steps ahead of them. So it was yeah. like, you know, order this, don't order that, blah, blah, blah. Struck up a little conversation. They had just moved to Nashville from Seattle. And discovered that there were supposed to be eight people in their party, but half of them were in the hospital, and the other half had to go visit parents who were sick. Oh, no. And it was like, that's sad, right? Yeah, that's yeah. sad that your friends aren't able to be here. Yeah. Anyway, they just seemed like the friendliest people. So as we were leaving, we just thought, well, we're just going to pick up that check. Yeah. So we went over, you know, grabbed check. And, of course, I'm saying this on the air now, bragging about yeah. it. But really, it was sort of fun to say, they don't know who in the world we are. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the waiter said, do you want me to tell them the name? I'm like, no, 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 let's keep the name for them. Yeah. Somehow they found out and got an email to our customer service. Seriously? Yeah. I didn't not no, know any true. of this. They emailed our customer service and said, tough night, made our night, made the beginning of the new year great. We actually went to the ATM and got a bunch of 20s and walked around a park and gave <sighs> the equivalent or more than you gave us to homeless people. Oh, my gosh. So then they were creating moments. They were creating moments. Oh, that's but amazing. But I just got choked up because, you know, it was just sort of spur of the moment thing. You don't really think about it. Yeah. And then I literally just said to myself, why don't you do that all the time? Yeah. Just do that all the time. Yeah. You know, just creating little moments for people. It really does brighten your day, and, and as I said before, it's a great business yeah, strategy. Yeah, same thing happened when I tried the Diablo sauce at Taco Bell for a definite <laughs> moment. Same night. Same night, same moment. <laughs> kind of the same thing. The airlines <laughs> created a moment for you. They did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here's my conversation with Dan Heath. The book is The Power of Moments. It's a winner, I'll tell you, and I think you're going to get a lot of smiles out of this episode, but a lot of business strategy, too. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'll tell you, your book reminded me of a year, I think it was about, oh, seven, eight years ago. I just decided to kind of say yes to everything one year. This was before I got married. I had a lot of time. I ended up riding my bicycle across America, going kayaking 50 miles away from civilization, all this kind of stuff. And I remember looking back on that year and thinking, that feels like five years. I mean, I couldn't believe that the beginning of the year was five years away compared to more recent years where, you know, you just get stuck. You're not stuck, but you're just busy, you know, growing a business and, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. And it feels like 365 days ago was six weeks ago. There's something about intentionally creating moments that I think extends life, or at least has the perception of extending life. Your new book, The Power of Moments, talks about, from a life perspective, from a business perspective, from all sorts of perspectives, the importance of just saying, hey, don't forget to create memorable scenes in your story. Do you think I'm on to something where this this idea that it extends life? 
Not only are you onto something, there's a large body of research that backs you up. So psychologists talk about what's called the reminiscence bump. And it means that if you ask people, no matter what their age, you could be talking to an 80-year-old and you ask them to recall their most important moments, the defining moments of their lives, they tend to disproportionately recall memories from a period of time that ranges from about age 15 to about age 30. They call it the reminiscence bump. And it's a puzzle, right? Somebody 75, 80 years old, they're recalling these memories. It might be 50, 60 years old. Why not something more recent? And the explanation for this is that this period, 15 to 30, is the time of so many firsts. You know, it's your it's your first kiss. It's your first job. It's your first time away from mom and dad. It's your first true love. It may be your first, hopefully your last marriage as well, and maybe your first kid. And the significance of all that is it's this enormous novelty. You know, your life is changing so much. You're discovering new frontiers and new things about yourself. And as time goes by, as we age, you know, a lot of that kind of upheaval stops happening. And in many ways, that's a good thing, right? Because it means we've determined what our path is in life and who we want to spend it with and what we're good at and where we should live. And those decisions are really important. But one side effect of that is that we're losing novelty. We're losing those kind of dramatic changes in our trajectory. And as a result, time seems to pass faster. And so your story about that one year where you were deliberate about, in a sense, injecting more novelty into your day-to-day life, it's no surprise that you started laying down this kind of richer, denser set of memories that you might not in a normal year. And so you're right. And in many ways, your year captures the intent of this book, which is that we can be in control of these moments. You know, we don't have to be the passive recipients of great moments. We don't have to just wait for these moments to happen, that we can create them. And whether that means for our customers or our patients or our kids or ourselves. Well, I want to get back into in a second where you're going, because especially from the perspective of creating great moments for our customers. But, you know, I'm 46 now, and I actually identified, even before I read your book, this idea of, you know, it's just not the first time anymore. It's not the first time you've seen a great piece of art. It's not the first time you've seen you 2 in concert. It's not the first time. And there's this question in my brain of, is it only because it's not the first time, or is it also because as you get older, your brain chemistry changes? I'm just wondering if, you know, less serotonin seeps through your amygdala as you get older, those kinds of things where, you know, you talk to a teenager, they come back from a rock concert, and they can't go to sleep for two straight days because they're so excited. When, you know, I'm kind of like, wow, this is a long second act for you too. I might actually <laughs> skip the last few songs and try to beat the rush out of the parking lot. And I just feel like an old fuddy-duddy. And I'm kind of going, okay, is this because I've experienced this before or is it because something's different in my brain chemistry? I, I think it's not a brain chemistry thing. No, because I think you illustrated this for yourself with that period of your life where you started kind of uh, ripping yeah. up your assumptions and trying different things. And so what you're saying, Dan, is it's my fault. It is your fault. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, that's the conclusion we came to in the book is that most of what's wrong with the world is on your shoulders. Well, hey, this podcast has always existed so that I could get really intelligent people on the show and get free consulting here. So where do I go from here? You identify. If we could just <laughs> neutralize your influence. There you go. There you no, go. I think this is a real issue, though, because this is the tension of, of adulthood, yeah, which is that is. we want to make wise choices. And wise choices start with who we surround ourselves with, where we live, where we spend our time, where we feel like we can give back. 
And once we figure those things out, there's no particular need to reinvent them every day. In fact, it would be unwise to go looking for a new partner or a new profession or a new calling every day. But one consequence of that is what we talked about earlier, which is that you're not having these kind of mind-blowing revelations the same way that a teenager does, where it's around every corner is a new trap or a new door opening that fascinates you. And so I think the middle ground is really well captured in that old saying, variety is the spice of life. Notice that the saying isn't variety is the entree of life. You know, nobody's sitting down to dine on pepper and oregano. But a lot of times we let even a little bit of variety seep out of our life. And that's, that's one of the things we're urging people to think about in the book. You know, how do we continually challenge ourselves and push ourselves and stretch ourselves in new directions for the sake of additional memorability? Well, I want to get into four techniques, four tactics for creating great moments, but I also just want to say that I think one of the great lessons of the book is something that I really believe in, and that's accepting personal agency for your life, accepting responsibility. And you already hinted at this idea of don't just wait for great moments to happen. Don't let somebody else create those moments for you, although that's fine. Actually take responsibility for your life and create them for yourself. Would you say that if you've studied sort of dynamic people, they actually understand that life is theirs to kind of co-create, if you will, with the you know deity and agencies who created this life. You can sort of get to co-create it rather than be a consumer of it. Do you see a difference in the exceptional moments between those two camps of people? Well, certainly. I think when we catch on that we do have authorial power on our life, we can do great things. In fact, the very first story in the book is one of my favorites. It's about two people who discovered that, Chris Barbick and Donald Commence. They were co-founders, or rather Barbick was the founder and Commence was one of the first hires at a charter school network called Yes Prep in Houston, where both of us grew up. And they're sitting in a bar. They probably worked a 14-hour day. It's grueling, long work starting school. And they would go to this pub in Houston called Ernie on Banks, and this one night they were having beer and pizza and watching ESPN on the bar TV. And ESPN was previewing what's called signing day, which college football fans know is the day when high school football players declare where they're going to play ball. And so if you're a college football fan, this is a big day. You can scout your upcoming talent. And, and Chris and Donald were watching this and they started kind of bemoaning the fact that high school athletes that play this game, you know, they get all this attention and all this adulation and they're on national TV. And meanwhile, their students who are primarily from low income Hispanic families, many of them would be the first to graduate from high school in their whole family and almost certainly would be the first to go on to college. They get no attention. And so they are kind of just whining about this and grousing about society's misplaced values. And then at a certain point in the conversation, like something just clicked and they said, well, hang on, why don't we make a day like this for them? Why don't we celebrate them? And the idea for something called Senior Signing Day was born. And the vision was literally that, that for this one day, their graduating seniors would be held up with the same pomp and the same circumstance that we treat high school football athletes with. And so the way it worked in that first year and every year since was that all of the graduating seniors, by the way, at Yes Prep, it's a condition of graduation to be accepted to a four-year school. They can't force you to go, obviously, but they can force you to get accepted. You've got an acceptance letter in hand. And so every graduating senior takes the stage. They're often holding like some kind of swag from the school they've chosen, you know, a cap or a pennant or a t-shirt. And they'll hold up the swag and say, my name is Eddie Zapata and this fall I'll be attending Vanderbilt University. 
And the crowd is full of not only the other graduating seniors and their families, but also every other student in the Yes Prep network from sixth grade up to junior year. In the early years, that was a couple of hundred people. I saw it last year in the Toyota Center where the Houston Rockets play. 10,000 people cheered when graduating seniors announced where they're going to college. It is an utterly remarkable moment. No question it's a defining moment in these seniors' lives. It's a defining moment in their parents' lives and all the sacrifices they've made. Changed the course of tens of thousands of people's entire future outlook. Exactly right. Not only that, it's been adopted by districts across the country who caught on to how powerful this was to hold up students you know, in this way for a day a year. And you trace it all back it originates with exactly the moment you described in a bar in Houston, Texas. You know, the moment when they realized we don't have to be recipients, we can be creators. I love it. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, you're talking to 40,000 creators. There's no question that people listen to this podcast are people who make things happen. They make culture happen. And so, you know, a lot of people are hearing this saying, I want to do this for my customers. I want to do this for my stakeholders. I want to do this for the people I support in my nonprofit. I want to go through some of the elements of creating great moments that you guys outline in your book. And the first is creating moments of elevation. And you actually tell the story of, you know, going to Disney World the whole day, you know, you kind of waited in line to get in, and it was a really hot day. You're sweating. There was that time when you had to run to find a bathroom, and the bathroom was busted, and you had to go to a different bathroom. All those things that actually did happen, none of which you ever remember, because you only remember the peak moments. And as I read that, I thought about what we do. You know, we do some workshops, we do some live events, and I thought, am I creating peak moments or am I just getting through the content with my customers? It was actually kind of convicting. Can you talk about how to create moments of elevation in the products and the solutions that we deliver? Yeah, I think this is an absolutely critical part of the book's message. And I want to start with a story that I think kind of captures in a nutshell where we're going. There's this hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle. I suspect most of the people listening have not been to the Magic Castle. And so I want you to just freeze in your mind your mental image of the place that comes up when I say the Magic Castle Hotel. And then I want to tell you that the actual Magic Castle Hotel looks nothing like that thing that's in your brain right now. It is neither a castle nor is it particularly magical looking. It looks like what it is, which is an apartment complex from the 1950s that was converted into what's effectively a motel, painted bright yellow. The rooms are totally average, kind of like a Holiday Inn Express level of luxury, the lobby is very average. The courtyard looks like the courtyard of a 1950s era apartment complex. And let me add a fact to this mental picture that I'm painting. And the fact is that on TripAdvisor, if you go look it up right now, the Magic Castle is the number two rated hotel in all of Los Angeles. It outranks the Ritz-Carlton. It outranks the Four Seasons. And so the obvious question here is how in the world could that be true? The Magic Castle has figured out that Moments are key to the experience that customers have. So let me just tell you about one of those moments. By the pool, which again is about the size of like your neighbor's backyard pool, nothing remarkable. By the wall near the pool, there is a cherry red phone mounted, a little bit mysterious. If you pick up the phone, somebody answers, popsicle hotline, may I help you? <laughs> and they will bring out cherry, grape, orange popsicles right there to you at poolside, presented on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. And again and again and again at the Magic Castle, they conjure these kind of incredible moments out of thin air. 
And to your point, you know, when people go home and they look back on their vacation, three months later, do they care that the decor in the rooms wasn't that fancy? No. Do they care that the grounds were not lavish and, you know, well manicured? No. But are they telling people, hey, you're not going to believe this. There was a phone by the pool. It was called the Popsicle Hotline and blah, blah, blah. The moment stands above the rest. And so to the point of the research that you alluded to earlier, what we know from studying the way people remember experiences is that the reality is most of what the experience washes out. In fact, there's a phenomenon called duration neglect, which says that we tend to forget the length of an experience. And what we're left with are snippets, you know, moments. Any of you can test this just by thinking of some period in your life, a vacation or a semester in college or your first month on the job. And you'll notice very quickly, you can't just summon up that whole experience and watch it beginning to end. You just remember the special parts, the best parts, the worst parts. And so when we're creating experiences for customers, that's a really important point because it's counterintuitive in a way because we've been trained that if we want to create a great experience, logic would hold that, well, all of it's got to be great, right? It's got to be wall-to-wall great. It's got to be end-to-end great. But in fact, if you pay careful attention to experiences that are really meaningful, really memorable to people, what you'll find is that those experiences are often mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable. And what happens is we're so busy trying to minimize the problems and the potholes that people experience that we forget to build the peaks that are the remarkable bits. Yeah. And they don't seem very difficult. I mean, if you think about the expense of gourmet popsicles and one employee and one telephone That's not much of an expense to become the number two rated hotel in Los Angeles. And I'm sure they're doing more than that, right? But it takes some creativity. It takes some thought. It takes some really empathy and compassion and care for our customers' experience. You're making me want to hire somebody who just does this, who just sits around StoryBrand and figures out how to do this kind of thing. I think it might be a worthy investment. Would you actually say that that would be a worthy investment for a lot of customers or a lot of clients? No, I don't because I I think that it's everybody's job. Like I think that the mistake we're making is this. like. I think everybody who delivers a product or service to a customer understands that step one is to what Chip and I call whelming people, you know, not overwhelming, not underwhelming, but whelming them, meaning that we've delivered just the basic set of things that people expect from whatever we're delivering. So, you know, back to the magic castle, if your beds are just horribly uncomfortable, or if you don't have air conditioning people aren't going to be charmed by the Popsicle hotline. First, you have to show that you've basically gotten above the bar. That's something we call in the book filling pits. And so filling pits is a natural first step for a service experience. But then I think people make the error of progressing from pits to filling potholes, fixing potholes. And so we think if we want to make something better, you know, we've got to survey customers and pay attention to all the things that they're complaining about and then rush around and fix those things. And the thing is that will never stop. Like you're never going to run a survey where everybody does nothing but rave about you. There are always going to be more things that you could tinker with. And meanwhile, you may have spent years chasing potholes and never gotten around to building peaks. And so in a sense, what we're saying is we've got to move away from the model of filling pits and then fixing potholes and move toward a model of filling pits and then raising peaks. And I think that's a company-wide job. I think that is an absolute core business responsibility 
And you look at places like Southwest Airlines, I don't think they would use those terms. I don't think they, they consider themselves in the peak building business. But in effect, that's what they're doing, is they've got this kind of entry-level airline that is pretty cheap, pretty efficient. It's not that comfortable. You know, the peanuts are not that tasty. Um, but what makes it remarkable is that they've got these really creative, kind of playful staffers that are friendly. And everybody's doing it. The responsibility is accepted company-wide. Exactly right. You know, it's kind of throughout the culture that it's osmost that, you know, given what we're doing, which is running a business that's a low-fare airline, we're going to have as much fun as humanly possible with this. And we're going to be as nice as possible. And we're going to tell silly flight safety announcements. And I think that's a good example of how building peaks can be everybody's job. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Dan Heath in just a moment. Before we get back, though, I want to tell you about ClarifyYourMessage.com. This is a new initiative from StoryBrand in which you can find somebody to help create your website, help create your email marketing, help create your lead generating PDF. Basically, we have trained existing marketing professionals to create sales funnels that work. We've trained them using the StoryBrand process. They fly to Nashville. They spend four days with us, and we teach them to deliver incredible value as a marketing professional. If you are looking for somebody to create your website, to create a sales funnel for you, go to clarifyyourmessage.com, peruse our directory, contact a few folks from this directory, get to know them, and see if you hit it off with somebody who can completely revolutionize your marketing. You might be able to put off hiring that whole marketing department because these people are good. Go to clarifyyourmessage.com and solve your marketing problems today. You talk about helping people actually remember things when you're teaching them something, creating these moments of insight, and you talk about helping people trip over the truth. Can you explain how we can do this when we're actually not just helping our customers understand something, but you tell the story of an employer helping his entire company understand that they're not actually funding their retirement in the right way you know, he's matching their donations to their retirement and they're not making those donations. So he does something specific to help them remember and really identify. How do we help teach people things in such a way that their brains actually absorb the information? Yeah. So the story you're talking about, it starts with a small business owner and he's frustrated that his employees are not taking advantage of this 401k program he set up for them. He did it with this kind of enlightened point of view. He wants to help his employees. He wants them to have some financial security and he's offered to fully match their contributions. I mean, so he's sort of puzzled and frustrated when they're not all taking advantage of it. And, and so he tries bugging them and he tries reminding them and it doesn't work. And so one year he brings everybody together in December in the conference room and he walks in without a word with this kind of heavy looking medical bag, a little bit mysterious. And he walks over to the table, unzips it, turns it upside down and out on the table falls a huge pile of cash which gets people's attention. And then he tells them, the cash you see here, what this represents is the amount of money that all of you left on the table, you know, in this case, literally left on the table by not maxing out your 401k match. And he said, here's the thing. After this meeting, what I'm going to do is scoop all the money back in the bag, zip it back up, take it back to my bank and deposit it in my bank account. And he said, next year, we're going to have the same meeting on the same day. And my question is, do you want this money in your pocket or in mine? Oh, my gosh. And there was a rush <laughs> to sign up for the 401k program that yeah. day. And that's an example of tripping over the truth, which is 
to have an insight that's compressed in time and that happens in the minds of the audience. Now, it sounds simple, but in many ways, for those of us who are communicators, we consistently fall into the trap of we figure out what we think is the right message to get across. And then we find various clever ways of just shoving that message across the table at people rather than creating a situation where they can come to that discovery themselves. So one of my favorite examples of this, and it speaks to your point about workshops, and we should geek out about workshops because I've been thinking about exactly the same things. There's a guy named Michael Palmer at UVA. He's a professor of chemistry, but he also started something called the Course Design Institute, which is to help professors design the courses they'll be teaching. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this realize people who are college professors are really smart in their discipline. That's why they're professors, but they've probably never, literally never been given any instruction on how to teach all the things that they know. And so that was the vision of this thing he called the Course Design Institute. And what he is lobbying for is something that's called, this is a little bit of a geeky phrase, backward integrated design, which means that if you're a professor, you think forward to, hey, what are the most important things my students need to take away from this class three years from now when a lot of the minutia is kind of faded from memory? What do they really need to know? And then you move backwards to that to how would I assess whether they had absorbed those most important things? And then you move backward from that to, okay, what do I need to teach in order to prepare them for the assessments that prove they've absorbed those things? Now, that sounds eminently commonsensical, right? Surely all courses must be designed that way. No. The actual world of the college professor is you find out in August you're going to teach a section of chemistry one and you've never taught chemistry one. So you grab the best-selling textbook just to get an orientation and your reaction is, oh my God, there's a thousand topics here. How in the world am I ever going to teach all this stuff? And you start carving up those topics into weeks, and then you further subdivide the weeks into lectures. And at the end of it, what you've basically done is take a huge pile of stuff and micro subdivide it into lectures, and that's your class. And so what Michael Palmer is realizing is the professors are essentially designing their courses completely backward. They've got it all wrong, but he needs them to realize that. Because nobody's going to respond to this random professor of chemistry kind of poking them in the chest and saying, you're doing it wrong, right? How's that going to go over? Instantly, their shields are up. Instantly, they're tuned out. And so what he does on the first day, and I was there for one of these sessions, it was really fun to watch, is he starts by asking them a question. He said, imagine that you've got a group of dream students. They're engaged. They got good memories. He said, fill in this sentence three to five years from now, my students still know blank, or they're still able to do blank. And so they brainstorm, and then they start sharing their answers. And so, you know, there was a professor of zoology who said, you know, I would love it if my students still knew how to work through a mystery using the scientific process to find a way to study something. And, you know, a health professor said, I want them to feel comfortable looking at new journal articles as we learn more and not being intimidated by the methodologies and so forth. So all these things get put up on the board. Everybody's feeling really good about this. There's a sense of elevation in the air. People are talking about the most important things that they're teaching. And then Palmer is ready for the moment to help them trip over the truth. He points to what they've just surfaced as the most important things that they need to teach. And he says, okay, Looking at the syllabus that you brought in here today, what percentage of your syllabus 
is dedicated to teaching these things. And for most of the professors that go through this, it's kind of this forehead slapping moment where they realize zero is the answer. Literally 0% of their syllabus is designed, for instance, to make them conversant in the scientific process or to make them comfortable reading and discussing journal articles. And so that's just a masterful moment of teaching and a masterful, in the book's terminology, moment of insight that was designed and crafted by Michael Palmer and experienced by the people in the CDI. And it's gotten me thinking about the way I teach. You know, how can I do a better job not just shoveling ideas at people across the table, but conjuring situations where they can discover them themselves? You've built a career and you've gifted, I think, millions of people helping us understand how the brain actually works. As a writer, years ago, I kind of realized, I sat down and said, okay, I want to illustrate this point, or I want people to come to this conclusion in this chapter of this book. How did I come to that conclusion? And it was never, you know, I read some bullet points, I read an article in the New York Times, or it was, no, I went on a date with this girl, I actually saw this movie, and then I broke my big toe here, then I realized this, and then that's how I came to the conclusion. So then I had to sort of go, okay, well, I've got to write a chapter that basically breaks every reader's toe, has them break up with this girl, because <laughs> that's the only way they're going to come to the conclusion, too. Right. But then we come to the conclusion, and then we justify our conclusion with a series of bullet points, and then we think if I express the bullet points, somebody else will come to the conclusion. Exactly right. it doesn't right. happen. Well said. All right. Moments of pride. You talk about, you know, especially in the context of nonprofits, not that's the only place that you would use it, but you talk about sending thank you cards and connecting people's hands and thoughts with a donation or the receiving of a donation. Can you elaborate on creating moments of pride that are memorable in our minds? Yeah. One of the surprises in our research was we were asking people about their defining moments in their career, just kind of open-ended surveys to see what people would come back with. And I think, you know, probably our bias, this was early in the process, was they were going to come back with these kind of dramatic, grandiose moments, you know, I, well, I gave a keynote to a conference full of customers and I was really nervous or, you know, I was singled out by my colleagues for the, you know, employee of the decade award. And more commonly what we would get, this is an actual response. I was greatly commended by my manager for prepping the back room by cleaning and reorganizing all the bikes for easy scanning for inventory. I felt proud that someone actually took the time to acknowledge my effort. And my first reaction when I read these things, and there were a bunch that, that felt very similar, was a little bit disappointed. You know, they weren't those epic stories that I think I was craving. And then my second response was, you know, idiot, of course these are meaningful moments. Because, you know, what we talk about in the book, are there are these four elements that make moments really memorable. There's elevation, insight, pride, and connection. And when people are recognized by others, it basically folds all four of those things into the same moment the immediate spike in your mood when someone says something nice, that's elevation, and the insight that often comes when we hear how other people think about us or hear what other people think we're good at. And of course, the whole moment is one of pride. You know, you kind of puff your chest out at being recognized for something. And, and the connection, you kind of walk away from that moment feeling a little bit closer to the person or people who praised you. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board, realizing recognition is just a kind of universal secret sauce for creating powerful moments, and yet it's vastly underutilized. There's this great study that shows if you ask managers, do you frequently recognize your direct reports for the work they've done and honor them for that work? 80% of the managers say, yeah, yeah, I do that. And then if you ask their direct reports, 
do your managers frequently recognize you for the work you've done? 20% of them say yes. So we call that the recognition gap. And so if there was one thing that probably the simplest, the low-hanging fruit from the whole book, at least when it comes to management especially, more recognition is the answer. Yeah, it doesn't seem that difficult. It is not that difficult. It's free. It's easy. It's quick. It makes you feel good. It makes the person praise feel even better. And yet the mystery is it so rarely happens. Well, lastly, the thing that really brings a moment together, I think, is probably the most beautiful moments of connection we're actually connecting with each other. You know, it's just like, you know, almost anything. If you could watch a sunrise by yourself or you watch a sunrise with a friend and the sunrise was more beautiful with a friend. Sunrise was the same, but somehow socially connecting all of this with others puts an exclamation point on it. Can you elaborate on how we can bring sort of these social connections into creating moments? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the great ahas for Chip and I was when we came across the research of this social psychologist named Harry Reese, and he's been studying what is it that makes relationships stronger. And you can actually summarize his entire research in in one sentence that we feel our relationships growing stronger when we perceive that our partners are responsive to us, responsive is the key word there. And that encompasses three things, understanding, validation, and caring. So if you think through that, it's obvious what that means in your marriage or in a friendship. You know, if you're in a marriage where you come home after a really hard day and you're just, you're kind of miserable and defeated and you walk in the door and your partner doesn't even notice, that's a really bad sign. If you discover a new interest and your partner is either indifferent to it or maybe even dismissive, maybe they even mock you for trying something new, like that's very unresponsive. So it's intuitive in that context. But it's interesting to think in the business world, I'm not sure people have thought through how profound this is. Like in some cases, people get it right. And in some cases, they get it badly wrong. I'll give you a really trivial example. I fly a lot and I use American most often. They're my home airline. And so probably 300 times in the past few years, I've gone to the American site to book a flight. And every time I, you know, plug in the cities and the dates and all that stuff and the results come back and they are sorted by default by something that's called relevance, which I've always been fascinated by. Like, what is it that would make one flight more relevant than another? And so what I always do is I go to the pull down menu and I sort by duration because I don't mind paying a little extra if it's going to get me there quicker. 300 times in a row I have done that while logged into my account on America. And so that's <laughs> and like it's not listening. That's the unresponsive partner, right? <laughs> right, they, yeah. They're totally oblivious and indifferent to my preferences, which is interesting because the one thing they never forget about me is my credit card number. Right. They, they always manage to store that. <laughs> but then it's easy to find counterexamples too, you know, at Wells Fargo, which Lord knows they need a, a kind word said about them and maybe I'll be the one. When you insert your ATM card into the ATM machines, they will bring up in this kind of highlighted green box format the last two things that you did at an ATM machine. You know, maybe it was you pulled out 80 bucks one day and you made a check deposit another day. Those are the two things at the top of the screen, highlighted in green. What does that show? They're paying attention to you, right? They're watching, they're observing, they're trying to learn your preferences. And so it's interesting how this kind of formula of responsiveness that speaks to some of our most important relationships can also flow into things as trivial as an ATM or transaction or a flight booking. Years ago, I was doing some marketing research to see how Domino's Pizza had come back from the brink, and I made a pizza profile. 
filled out the pizza profile, put my credit card in, ordered a pizza, came to the door. You know, that was it. I was kind of wondering, okay, what's the brilliance of this pizza profile? How's this working? How's it making money? Well, now I have an affinity for Domino's Pizza because 30 minutes before the Seattle Seahawks kick off, I get an email saying, do I want that same pizza? I feel like this is kind That's of a digital so spouse that is, yeah. thankfully, I'm disciplined enough to say <laughs> no. Now, I mean, of course I want the pizza, but no, you can't keep doing this to me. But there is something that's true to that. I'm a huge Domino's fan myself. Like, uh, you know, I know you're supposed to like the fancy yuppie pizza with like the, <laughs> the lamb sausage and the arugula, but give me a Domino's any day. It's you're in my secret. You're in my secret. Oh, uh, well, this is fantastic. Do you have some examples? I mean, you talked about Wells Fargo. You talked about the need for American to figure this stuff out. You talked the positive about Southwest. Any companies that you've worked with that you think have really made some changes that they're doing this well that we can learn from? One of my favorite examples actually is one that it's not even in the book. There's this healthcare leader named David Feinberg, who uh, is now at Geisinger, but built his career at UCLA. And when he took over, UCLA was ranked at about the 38th percentile of patient satisfaction nationally. Not good. They had great medical outcomes. It was a place where they would fix you really well, but you may not have been that keen on the experience of being a patient. And so he made that his number one priority when he took over is to turn around the patient experience. And one thing that I think is just an absolute core explanation of how he managed this transition is something that, that will be near and dear to your heart, and that's storytelling. But notice that there's kind of an operational element behind the storytelling. And what I mean is he would have all of his senior people, you know, accountants, technology people, HR people do rounds. Same way that doctors and nurses do medical rounds, they would do customer rounds. So they would just walk the halls, talk to people in waiting areas. You know, when it was appropriate, they would drop in on patients and ask them about their care. And what is he trying to get them to do with this stuff? It's what we talked about earlier. He's trying to get them to trip over the truth, to discover things for themselves that they care about, shortcomings of their service. And so one day he was making rounds himself. He met this young guy who was in the hospital with his wife who just had a baby and he said there had been some complications. So they'd held his wife over a couple of days, and he'd been sleeping in the waiting area so he could be close to her. And he said that the staff had just been brilliant. And so Feinberg said, oh, wow, tell me about that. How did they help you? And he said, well, what was going on is I would fall asleep in the waiting area, and they had one of those sensors in the room where it detect movement. And so like, if I would flip over at night, it would sense the movement and turn the lights on which disrupted my sleep and, you know, it'd take me 20 minutes to get back to sleep and then it would happen again. And so he said he complained to one of the staffers and, you know, they were very nice about it, very apologetic. And he thought that was the end of it. And then the next night he came back to fall asleep and he happened to glance over at the place where that little sensor was. And somebody had come in and replaced the sensor with a light switch. And so he walked over to the light switch, flipped it off and had the first good night's sleep in several nights. And he told Feinberg, he said, I couldn't believe that people cared enough about me to do that. So think about all the things that are combined in that story that we've talked about, right? That's responsiveness. That's incredible responsiveness. But for Feinberg, what Feinberg hears in that story is, this is a story that I'm going to use to change this culture. And so Feinberg starts telling the story every time he's talking to anybody in the country. Guess what just happened to me? Listen to this. And what's happening when he tells that story is two things. Number one is he's signaling to the people that he means it. Right. He's creating a value. He's, exactly. He's saying this is a value. Yeah. Number one, he means it. And number two, he's saying 
this is the extent that I think it's appropriate to go for patients. In fact, Feinberg was notorious for saying, if you violate a policy because you think it's the right thing to do for a patient and it doesn't in any way endanger their health, I've got your back. You come talk to me. So he said, don't worry about cost. Don't worry about policy. Don't worry about the chain of command. If you're doing it with a clear intent to help a patient, I'm in your camp. And so I think that storytelling is funny in that it's almost like the echo of the defining moment. It's like the moment that mattered in this story was the moment for that young man in the waiting area. But then the stories that are told subsequently are like the ripple effects of that, that can reinforce the change. And in this case, UCLA became an organization that was essentially designed to create moments like that at scale. They started to happen all over the organization. It was almost like the moments became contagious. And four years later, I think people who've been through organizational change can appreciate just the absurdity of this pace. Four years later, UCLA goes from 38th percentile to 99th percentile nationally. That's the power of moments. That's incredible. Dan, this has been a great way to start off 2018. I think you've cast a vision for a lot of us. I want to thank you personally, not just for your insight, but for your generosity. Thanks for spending time with us today. Hey, really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you having me. Pretty fun, JJ. I am ready to have a whole lot of moments I in 2018. We need, we need a red phone in our office that you can pick up and <laughs> yes. order a popsicle. It gets hot in Nashville. <laughs> Maybe ice cream. <laughs> I love the ice cream idea. Yeah. I like it. That makes me want to go to that hotel just yes. to get a popsicle. Fantastic stuff. Dan, thank you for coming on the show. By the way, he's a Houstonian. I discovered that Dan Heath grew up, was born maybe two or three years after me, grew up about, no kidding, 15 minutes from really? the house I grew up in. And so <laughs> we both so agreed that finally a couple good things came, <laughs> came out, out of, of South Houston. Houston. <laughs> Me and Dan, especially Dan, I yes. should say. Uh, next week, Brian Miles is on the show. Brian has a company called Belay, and he has, I think, 450 virtual assistants. Yes. One man with 450 well, virtual I'm, assistants. Well, not for him. It's technically true. <laughs> they all work for him. He needs that much help. <laughs> no, but he has a company that employs virtual assistants. And I have one. I know. This is not an ad. And we love her. I hired one, and she's great. Yeah, we love her. But I had some questions going into the relationship with a virtual assistant on how do you use an assistant? How do you employ an assistant? How do you keep them busy? How do you make them happy? How do you get the most out of them? That kind of thing. And it's a really great conversation. If you have anybody who works for you in any way, you're going to want to listen to next week's podcast. Here's a little clip of my conversation with Brian Miles. For me, this is the difference between an okay assistant and a rock star assistant. It's this thing that you learn by learning your leader, the person you work with, like this might cause stress or there's no way that's gonna work on the calendar or that doesn't sound right. You know, so she's also kind of my eyes and ears too. You know, hey, I heard something, you might wanna check that out. But the truth is when you anticipate needs, you're looking for things that um, are gonna cause friction in your day. And she just does that. So for example, hey, you seem like you're really kind of booked out on that Thursday. I went ahead and moved that three o'clock call you had scheduled to Monday when you're more fresh because you know it's important meeting and I just wanna make sure you're all set up for it and your, your mind is in the right place. That is a gift of an assistant that can truly anticipate your needs. 
There we go. All right. If you haven't subscribed to the Building a Story Brand podcast, do so today. You don't want to miss an episode. They're all this good. Be sure to tune in next week for that entire conversation with Brian Miles. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. Also, my new book, Building a Story Brand, is out now. It has the entire story brand framework. If you're confused about how to communicate what you offer to the world, read the book. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and get Building a Story Brand today. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.